0: Hello and a very warm welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskeeler and I'm delighted to be bringing you another great episode with my co-host and the editor of Gold, Helena Beer. Great to have you uh, back in the studio, Helena.
1: Thank you. It's good to be back. It's been such a busy time of pharma conferences. The Gold team has attended four in the past two weeks, three in person and one virtually. And it's been great to get back chatting with people face to face again.
0: Indeed. And if you didn't hear the previous episode, our bonus edition, uh, looking at Next Pharma, then do check that out.
1: This week, the Gold team has been focusing on access to medicines, and we have two brilliant interviews on the cards, don't we?
0: We certainly do. So later on, we're going to be speaking to Alexander Nat, Secretary General at the European Confederation of Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs. But first, Lenius Huenda, the founder and CEO of Medicines for Africa.
1: Cheyenne Eugene, one of Gold's content and editorial assistants, spoke with Lenius about a recent Gold feature called Farmer in South Africa that Lenius contributed to. Originally published in the April issue of Gold, their discussion takes a deeper look into the topics covered.
0: Yes, they discuss the National Health Insurance Bill, a huge healthcare system overhaul that's currently being implemented across South Africa, as well as looking into the country's genomic surveillance infrastructure potential and the complex landscape of market access across the African continent.
1: Let's have a listen.
2: Hi, Lenius. Thanks for joining me. I've been really looking forward to our conversation today.
3: Hi, Cheyenne. It's my pleasure to join you as well. Thank you for inviting me. It's really
2: lovely to have you. Um, I want to start off by talking about the organisation that you are CEO and founder of, that's Medicines for Africa. Can you tell our listeners about the organisation's objectives and explain what part of the African access landscape the organisation focuses on exactly?
3: So at Medicines for Africa, we solve the problem that quality medical products that are needed to meet basic health needs in African countries are consistently not available where they are needed, when people need them, and when they're available, they are often too costly or the quality is not certain. So our mission is to improve the consistent availability of medicines of proven quality at prices that are affordable to to both buyers and patients. So our work really involves taking steps and doing things that reduce the cost barriers that increase the cost of uh, buying medicines uh, in order to to make them affordable so one thing about the way african countries buy medicines is that a lot of them are depending on development partners to fund part of their health needs but the challenge is that a lot of this development support has a very narrow focus or it tends to focus primarily on HIV, AIDS, TB, malaria, and it neglects many of the public health problems that are affecting significant proportions of national populations, things like diabetes, cancer, injury and trauma, cardiovascular diseases, and all of these things that are affecting a lot of African people are neglected. And so that is our focus is medicines for Africa because that is where the greatest needs are in terms of medicines availability that are affordable and of good quality.
2: So I just want to pick up on something that you said there, why is it that these partners who are working with African companies and countries are focusing on diseases such as HIV, which I understand that um, South Africa holds the highest prevalence for HIV. But you've just said yourself that diabetes, cancer and cardiovascular disease are just some examples of other diseases which are highly prevalent in South Africa. So why are we seeing this imbalance in the type of medicines that are prioritized?
3: Yes, certainly. You know, that's a really interesting question. And I think it really comes from the objective of the, you know, what is the purpose of the um, development partners when they are helping or, or supporting their bilateral partners in terms of, you know, um providing health care. And I think it's, mainly because the countries, um, the bilateral partners are driven by the motive to protect their own health security. It's really a health security agenda and that basically means that those countries are in the west who are providing this development support are interested in protecting or investing in areas which poses a risk to their own population and that tends to be the kind of problems that are infectious You can catch AIDS, you know, if a person has HIV um, in another country, that's that's a contagious thing that can be passed on. Whereas if you have cancer, even though it's a big problem, even though a lot of people uh, for whom these development funds are supporting to get HIV medications are living longer and are suffering from diabetes, from cancer and so forth, it's really not within their interest and um, their, their primary objective of, of, of protecting health security, which is really the main driver of the provision of that support. I think that's a large part of, of, of why there is a, um, an imbalance in terms of what is supported versus the, the, the prevalence of, of the different problems that are affecting a particular population uh, between bilateral uh, partners.
2: Okay, that's really interesting. So it's the communicable diseases that pose a risk to the partners. And where those partners uh, originate from, which is typically going to be richer countries, uh, more well resourced countries. So the diseases which pose a risk to those countries, essentially, they get more attention. Absolutely. Mm, Thank you. Um, Moving on, just because we've got so much to get through, uh, you're quoted in the recent April issue of Gold in a feature titled Farmer in South Africa. Now, the feature mentions the National Health Insurance Bill or NHI for short. Just before I ask you my next question, I want to give our listeners some background on that. So the NHI is similar to the UK's NHS um, in that it will provide access to quality, affordable personal health services for all South Africans based on their health needs and irrespective of their socioeconomic status. So very much similar to NHS, as I mentioned. The NHI bill was passed in 2012 and is being implemented gradually with full integration expected to be completed by 2025. This is a massive overhaul for South Africa's health system. The previous system was one that many argued was completely failing. So my question to you is, how will the new NHI's integration impact access across South Africa?
3: I think one of the things it's going to do is to basically create um, a, a huge demand. For, for medicine and, 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 and creating an opportunity for medicines suppliers. And I, I think partly uh, that is to do with the fact that it is going to remove the ability to pay being a barrier to being able to access uh, treatment and care. And, and I think that's going to, to really create a lot of demand, a huge influx of new patients who weren't able to access uh, health care before, Because of the underfunded system that they have been having to depend on in the public sector or their inability to pay in the private sector. So that's going to generate uh, an estimated 46 million. Of additional uh, patients that are going to come into the system and generate greater demand for 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 medicines, and so I think we can expect that it's going to we're going to see an increase in demand for healthcare services, increase in demand for treatments for prevention, uh, for products that are involved in that.
2: You've said there that a massive forty six million more patients will be entering the healthcare system, so demand will obviously hugely increase. Are there any other impacts that the rollout of the NHI will have both on local and multinational pharmaceutical companies who supply medicine to the country?
3: So I think, you know, um, because it's a system that is supposed to meet the needs of the greater population, I think you're going to see, we're likely to see greater emphasis on pricing, on the pricing of medicines. And I think that's going to have a knock on effect on the demand for generic medical products. And and and, and I think that perhaps this, this is going to be a driver of growth in in the generic sector. And I think generic suppliers um, who who are able to offer competitive pricing and and provide cost effective products are going to obviously be the beneficiaries of, of of such a system. But I think here there is a risk, obviously, um, always that um some generic co- companies that are not able to. To be competitive in this space may end up exiting the market, but, but overall, I think that, um, hopefully uh, this is a system that will drive, um, greater demand for, um, for, for generic. Uh, production. As for um, international companies, I think you know what has happened beyond the NHI and what we've seen in in the COVID nineteen pandemic. I think there's a lot of investment um, coming into the uh, manufacturing sector. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for companies to come into South Africa and partner with local companies in order to to bring their you know some of their operations in whether it's manufacturing operations onto into into the um south african market in order to to be able to benefit from some of the likely uh i think conditions that that i think we might see which is um, designed to manage the development of the local pharmaceutical industry so From an international perspective, for global farmer, I think there's definitely an opportunity here to come and partner with local companies in order to to meet that demand, that increase in demand for generic medicines, for other medications that is going to come from the increase in patients that are coming onto the, the healthcare sector.
2: Yeah, it sounds brilliant, um, like an amazing overhaul. Um, but I'm sure that it's not all roses. So are there any kind of limitations or concerns around the implementation of NHI that uh, you think are particularly prevalent?
3: One big concern that a lot of people have is 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 the governance, how the, the whole thing will be managed. Because... You know, At the moment, it is foreseen that the Minister of Health will appoint the NHI Fund board members and the board chairperson and the CEO of the fund. So that means that decision-making is going to be very concentrated. And this creates huge opportunities for corruption. And this is a big concern for a lot of South Africans. So there is a major trust deficit in leaders and institutions how are they going to manage and reduce the risk of corruption under the NHI and how are the processes and decisions going to be structured uh, so that you have transparency and you you minimize um, the the opportunities for for corruption that such a concentration of power can create. A lot of people are, are really worried about this. So, those are some of the issues that um, NHI would have to really tackle and 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 find uh, practical ways of dealing with it in order to 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 build the trust of just the general population, but also of the workforce itself. Uh, this is a concern for them.
2: Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. And there are some uh, very heavy political hurdles to to be overcome. So it'll be interesting to watch how that unfolds. My next question is around genomic surveillance. Now, genomic surveillance has been and still is a hugely important technology that has allowed us to monitor changes to the COVID-19 virus's genetic code, which has ultimately allowed detection and tracking of different variants. You mentioned this technology in the recent feature and the potential that lies with South Africa's infrastructure in this respect. Where do you imagine South Africa's genomic sequencing and surveillance infrastructure will fit into the global pharma industry in the near future?
3: Yes, you know, I think South Africa has shown that it has a globally competitive genomic surveillance infrastructure and, um, you know, for genomic surveillance. and, And I believe that it's going to really play a very critical role. Um, going forward for for global farmer and for 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 global health in 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 general, um, I think that you know, um, because of the role. I mean, if you imagine in this pandemic, for instance, South Africa has really re- led already in a number of aspects. You know, Omicron, uh, the Omicron var- variant was detected in South Africa, and global farmer needs reliable information, you know, genomic information, whether a new variant or an emerging pathogen is going to be more contagious or more virulent or more resistant to the tools like vaccines and antivirals that we already have. So this information is really critical for supporting scientific and clinical innovation and, um, or, or for modifying, uh, products that already exist against new variants so that they, they they continue to be effective. So I imagine that South Africa will have a major role to play going forward, in, in not only in global pharma innovation, but uh, global uh, disease surveillance uh, to, to make sure that we monitor where the potential problem spots are, where the next challenge might come from where what could be the source of the next pandemic so 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 yeah i think it's going to be a major player just given what where where south africa is in this current pandemic and the contributions um south africa has already made with the support of course of uh, regional health institutions like the regional, the WHO regional office for Africa, which has been collaborating with um South African institutions with their genomic surveillance network and institution in 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 South Africa, and and feeding onto the regional, I think infrastructure, uh, created by the Africa CDC, which has created a network of uh surveillance genomic surveillance laboratories. I think. All of these things are going to feed into each other and strengthen the ability of the South African National Bioinformatic um, Institute in Cape Town, which is really the leader uh, in South Africa's genomic surveillance efforts and connecting to to the wider regional infrastructure, which then connects to the global, I think. Um, So it's going to be a major resource for global farmer.
2: Yeah, and so this genomic surveillance infrastructure that South Africa really started to capitalize on during the pandemic was that being invested in years before what's the story behind that where did it sort of come from when when did they start investing in it
3: so so Cheyenne I think you know South Africa has really been investing a lot in science and technology over time they have quite a lot of institutions um the south african medical research and 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 many many others that are involved and in you know investing into into building the the scientific landscape of south africa so 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 this is not something that has you know sort of come up as a result of the pandemic. It's um, it's an investment that they have been making over time in the fa- past few years. In you know in their academic research with the support of the government. But I think what the pandemic has done was to accelerate um, that effort and to also increase the visibility of this work. So that it was able to actually get even more support because all of a sudden people could see why these institutions are important, why they are needed in order to keep South Africans safe and so that has really had the accelerating effect um of, of actually improving um and attracting more investment into the into the sector, not just the, the 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 academic side of things but in general the life sciences um sector of South Africa in the biotechnology companies you have quite a lot of biotechnology companies that are coming up in South Africa. There's a lot of you know and, and it's one of the places where you have quite a lot of clinical research going on. So I think all of these factors have really come together in a perfect storm, so to speak, to to actually strengthen South Africa's um, uh, genomic surveillance infrastructure and and landscape so that um, going forward, I think it should be able to move from strength to strength if this support is sustained over time.
2: Yeah, thank you for um, enlightening us a little bit more on that. So for one final dive into the recent gold feature that you contributed to, I wanted to ask you about a point you raised on market access. You believe that multilateral organisations such as Gavi and UNICEF can actually create hurdles for South African pharma companies in terms of their access to international market channels. So I'm I'm referring to local um, South African pharmaceutical companies. Could you go into a little more detail about the impact that these multilateral organisations are having on South Africa's access to international markets?
3: Yes, certainly. Um, You know, uh, Cheyenne, multilateral organisations like Gavi and UNICEF, part of their job or part of what they say their job is, is to manage risk for buying vaccines in a way that spreads that risk so that the risk is not concentrated in one place. So that means buying from a diverse group of manufacturers from around the world, not just one part of the world. And in Africa in particular, um, we have a very unique situation where governments, many governments, a lot of, most of the governments have delegated the role to buy vaccines, through these mechanisms, the Gavi and UNICEF mechanism, because they have, you know, they have the economies of scale and therefore they're able to to get very good deals from manufacturers. In fact, UNICEF has a most favored nation close in its contract, in its supply contracts, which means that nobody can give, no supplier can give anyone a better price than they give unicef and if they do do that unicef can go back and re- demand or request to be given the same price for all of their purchases so they they do bring a good um you know benefit in terms of the cost that they can buy vaccines for in return for countries delegating that responsive response to them but what we found out during the pandemic what we saw is that actually at least 60% of the vaccines that Gavi uh, is purchasing on behalf of low and middle income countries, in particular of, of Africa, were coming from one institution in one country, the Serum Institute of India. And so that means you they actually concentrated all of the risk in one company. And, and so what happens is, what happens is if India shuts down, which is exactly what happened in this pandemic. So we suddenly found ourselves with no vaccines that could serve low and middle income countries in Africa and, and elsewhere. And, and, and that is the challenge. So organizations like Gavi and UNICEF, when they um, are buying from only one place and not spreading that risk like they explain that is one of their purpose to manage global risk for for um access to product what they're doing is that they're really denying companies in south africa or in any african country that are producing those medical products because they have control of that market because countries have delegated that responsibility to them. They decide where they are sourcing those products from. And so when they don't buy, let's say from South African companies, what that does is really to deny local companies or companies that are producing locally a market, because that market, they're saving that market and they're going and buying somewhere else. So it it really does, or it has actually undermined the industrial development of the African pharmaceutical production because you know even when when companies are able to 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 find the investment to, to develop their own production capacity, they don't have a market because that market um, a large proportion of it is controlled by UNICEF which is choosing to buy somewhere else and not from the people producing locally.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And in your opinion, why would you say that um, organizations such as UNICEF um, were buying from the companies and the countries that they
3: were during the pandemic? Well, you know, I couldn't speak for UNICEF, of course. I don't know why they take the decisions that they do, but I imagine that part of it must be to do with, you know, um, they have always been buying from there. And that over time, they have a relationship with these companies where, you know, the supplying companies and that over time, perhaps the, 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 the amount of products that are coming from that particular company just just grows. And normally outside the pandemic, it works. It's not an issue. And they're able to serve their clients, i.e. the African governments, you know, and provide them with uh, low cost vaccines um and it works normally it works but in a in a in a global emergency situation where you might find yourself unable to to source from that particular country because you have issues of vaccine nationalism you have export bans because countries want to make sure that they have enough before they start exporting to other countries that becomes a problem when it, when they don't spread that risk. So. Um, for whatever the reasons why the boards of, of of these organizations allowed the organization to concentrate risk in one place, it has really proved very harmful for countries of Africa. for 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 that reason, that uh, yes, that risk needed to be spread, and it could have been spread by purchasing from companies that have existed on the African continent. You have uh, BioVac, which has been manufacturing vaccines on the continent. You have um, the institute Pasteur de Dakar that been you know these are companies that been making that have been making vaccines for decades. Uh, the institute Pasteur de Dakar is the one of the main manufacturers of of the yellow fever vaccine for instance so so so, so these are companies that were there and certainly could have been supported by the way that Unicef and Gavi buys vaccines, you know, also procuring from those companies so that they are able to invest in in their growth and in improving uh, their quality production and all aspects of industrial development in South Africa and on the African continent. You know, just to speculate a little bit here also, you know, I what I have noticed, you know, so you have... You know, people like the Gates Foundation, what I have seen, at least, you know, just seeing in the news, is that they also invest in, in some of these manufacturing um, operations or companies. They are supporting the development of, 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 of companies um, in, in India, in particular, in, in, in India and China. And I don't know to what extent the fact that a powerful uh, founder, of multilateral organizations like the Gates Foundation, um, when they are also investing in the development of companies in Asia, you know, to what extent does that impact the decision where those organizations actually purchase um, those products? You know, could could there be pressure or an incentive to buy where you know the where the the people that are funding a lot of these organizations, like the Global Funds, they are you know also in the in the same um, you know sort of category of products of 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 organizations that are supported by philanthropic funding organizations like the the Gates Foundation. I, I just wonder, you know, how to what extent that influences where uh, organizations that are being funded by the Gates Foundation actually procure medis- medications.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really fair speculation um, and it's important that we have these conversations that can sometimes be maybe a little bit uncomfortable um, and knotted and tricky to get to the bottom of. Uh, Lenius, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Cheyenne. This
3: has been a really fun conversation to have, so we should stay in touch. We must speak again. Absolutely. I'd I'd say we're friends now. <laughs> Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Such an insightful chat there. Lenius really looks at the bigger picture and gives us a good look into how the development of South Africa's health and science infrastructure will benefit the global pharma industry.
0: Moving on for the second part of our access special, we're turning our attention to pricing and reimbursement in Europe and catching up with Alexander Nats, Secretary General at the European Confederation of Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs. This organisation helps companies and associations active in research, development, production and distribution of pharmaceutical products to enhance their scientific, technical, economic and legal objectives.
1: Indeed and in the interview our assistant editor Isabel O'Brien and Alexander discuss his early interest in pharmaceutical pricing models, the evolution of value demonstration and the new EU HTA procedure as well as much more.
0: It's a fantastic overview on some key access topics in the EU today so let's hand over to Isabel.
4: So Alexander thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
5: I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here.
4: Thank you so much. So we've got you on today because you are an expert in all things pricing, access and regulatory. And we think you have some really valuable insights for our listeners. But as we do for every podcast, before we get into the insights, we love to find out a little bit about the person behind them. So, Alexander, I noticed that while at university, even back at that point, you had a particular interest in the law surrounding pricing and access to pharmaceuticals. I believe you actually did your dissertation on something around this subject. So I'd love to know what first sparked your interest in this area.
5: Yeah, I think, uh, uh, indeed, I mean, it's a very interesting topic to talk about pharmaceuticals in general, but in particular to talk about access and pricing and reimbursement in pharmaceuticals. And what first struck my interest was uh, doing a phase when I was at Duke Law School in the U.S. Uh, uh, to really do a, a comparative study between uh, the U.S. and the uh, EU about pricing and reimbursement of pharmaceuticals. and. Uh, whether health insurance systems and payers can actually fix prices uh, altogether, so doing something which uh, you're not allowed to do in, in, in private uh, in fr- private business. So that was really my starting point of my journey into uh, pharmaceuticals, and it was uh, yeah. it, it was fun to do that already quite early in law school.
4: Fantastic to hear. Um, So going on to my second question then, obviously since that point you've had a whole career sort of dedicated to these kind of subjects and you're now an advisor for pharmaceutical and biotech companies on regulatory pricing and reimbursement matters specifically within the EU. So I really wanted to ask you, and maybe this is quite a big question, but as you see it, how is the landscape for demonstrating the value of a therapy evolving in the EU specifically?
5: It has evolved a lot i mean we must say that uh, we've come a long way in in the last 10 to 15 years when uh, when i came first to brussels in the year 2008 uh, what we call health technology assessment were not so common even in europe and nowadays we have health technology assessments all over the place in the european countries we are even about to form one health technology assessment starting for certain products oncology indications and also uh, Celandine therapies atMPs in twenty uh, twenty five so um we've, we've things have changed uh, tremendously over the last ten years uh, if you had if you have a product launched uh, fifteen or ten years ago it was in most of the countries it was enough to show quality safety and efficacy to get a marketing authorization by the European Commission or the national competent authorities nowadays, there is what people call the force hurdle you also have to convince payers healthcare systems uh, to to actually um, uh, pay for that medicine and just to give an example, already in 2011, Germany started to do a health technology assessment in all new active pharmaceutical ingredients launched in Germany. And by doing that, they had covered the majority of the new product, and the innovative products launched in Germany. Today, nobody's questioning anymore that you have to take that fourth hurdle. Uh, nobody's questioning anymore that you have to put some data to the table, comparative data to the table, uh, when you're actually bringing your products to patients because. I think we have a common, uh, a, a common alignment here that um, patients, healthcare care systems, uh, physicians, all stakeholders involved want to know about the, the value of the medicine and um, really know how much it is better. Uh, they really want to know how much it is better uh, as compared to the existing therapy. So what we're seeing is uh, clearly a trend towards uh, value demonstration. Uh, um, So I think that's a trend uh, which will not be reversed, and and uh, it is good to see that we are also now moving at the EU level to have a one-stop shop for that value assessment. Because at the end of the day, we're talking about the same product, Uh, and I think the the positive part about this is that uh, we hope that market access will be uh, much quicker under the EU HTA system. But I know we're going to talk about that later on. So I stop here. I think uh, value demonstration is part of the exercise you're doing when bringing a product, a pharmaceutical to the market in, in the EU.
4: So value is now the magic word. And yes, you are right. We are going to come on to that EU procedure, which, as you said, is due to take effect in 2025. So first of all, I'd love to ask what about mid to large pharma companies? What is this health technology assessment? What are the changes going to mean for them?
5: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the, the new EU HTA system applies for uh, big companies, small companies uh, in the same way. Um, and, and in a way that's understandable. I mean, um, it's if you want to bring an innovative product to European patients, you not only have to pass the, the registration hurdle with EMA and the European Commission, but you also have to um, pass that, what I called before, the fourth hurdle to uh, show some value to payers, uh, patients and, and physicians. And um, that applies similarly to uh, smaller companies and bigger companies. Now, the difference is probably, and I think we have to take that into consideration, that smaller companies might lack the resources to bring data to the table, which is, uh, which is a massive set of, of, uh, of data. Because when we are constructing our EU HDA system, um, the regulation already says that we need to accommodate the needs of all the EU countries. That was a political compromise. The political compromise was all those um, all those uh, countries need to see their needs reflected in that dossier, which is to be prepared for the EU HDA. That could mean that the standard of care is different in Italy than in Germany, in Malta, than in, 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 in Spain. And then all those... Um, national experts can request specific data sets for their country. We hope that we don't have so many national need requests let's call it this way for the time being because that would blow up the whole dossier if you i mean a benchmarking exercise only works if i benchmark against what we call a comparator right so if we are if we're asking for 27 different comparators because we are saying that uh we have a different standard of care in in, in all the 27 eu countries there's not much worse of that a uniform system at the EU level but that's an um, I'm exaggerating here I don't think that's very likely to happen what is more likely to happen that we might see three four different comparators and that would already be quite a big um, big dossier to be submitted there so that is a difference from the smaller and the uh, from the small and the big company perspective because Um, The the smaller companies, they lack the resources to have all that huge data packages delivered. But I think, uh, and let me be very clear on this one, uh, of course, smaller companies have to undergo that same system. We're not disputing that. What we are asking, we're calling the decision makers to be reasonable in the sense in terms of what data is to be submitted and also to be reasonable not to ask for more than three or four different comparators, because that, then it's three or four different exercises you're doing. But we know and we are reasonable enough to, to know that uh, you have to accommodate the national needs. It's even written in legislation. So small, big pharma, to answer your question, have to go the same pathway. Uh, and it's really important uh, as well. That what we're doing at the EU level is also to be taken into consideration uh, at the national level later on for the pricing and reimbursement decisions. A procedure which will then uh, be handed over into the into the national governments uh, to be continued. And and it's really important that what we're doing at the EU level is not duplicated there because that would be it would not be worth the effort if we're not recognising what we're doing at the EU level.
4: Interesting. A real balancing act by the sounds of it, trying to make sure no one's excluded from making these applications, but I guess also ensuring that they are fit for purpose. How much much needs to be done between now and 2025? What stage is all of this at now?
5: Yeah, that's a very good question thanks for that i mean uh, there is a lot to be done and the commission has a tremendous workload uh, uh, to be to be uh, 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 to be done in the next three years because as you know on the 12th of january 2025 we're starting with important products like oncology medicines atmp's the methodology needs to be developed the procedural rules need to be developed important questions need to be answered like uh, what will be the endpoints uh, how do we select endpoints what is the right methodology to assess an orphan medicine? Um, uh, what is the, the right methodology to assess a vaccine? We've seen the vaccines coming to European markets rather quickly. Um, so, uh, how do they? How will they be assessed in an EU HDA system? Because they are also subject to that new procedure. What about cell and gene therapies? One-time therapies very different from a chronic treatment option. So, how do we assess those medicines? How do we take into consideration that very often you don't have the the data on the table about the 10 year effect of that medicine, because you, you you just bring it to the market as quickly as you can. So how are we taking into account the specifics, the, the uniqueness of the individual products uh, in that respect, or product categories, better to say? There are a lot of questions to be answered. Also, the point I alluded to before, how do we deal with uh, uh, various com- uh, comparative requests from the national uh, decision makers. I think there are many questions to be answered, but uh, to be answered. But I'm very confident the co- Commission will handle. The Commission has a very um, good service provider called Unet Twenty One. There's a lot of expertise in these groups to make sure that we get the right procedure, the right methodology in place until we are starting the process in uh, gen- on January twelfth, uh, twenty twenty-five.
4: Well, in light of your confidence, then, Alexandra, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how effective you think this procedure is going to be in achieving its objective of improving the pace and ease of access to new innovations once it does actually come into effect.
5: Well, that's a, another good question and a very, very important question. Let's bear in mind, what we're doing here is the entry draw into Europe. There's no way around it. Uh, there are no national entry doors into HTA systems, there is only that European door in the future. So it's really important that we got it right. And um, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I can't really tell you whether the methodology will be fit for purpose. Uh, uh, And whether the procedural rights of companies, I mean, it's very important that we have opportunities to engage with decision makers, that all this is actually working out when, uh, when we have it, uh, when we have it ready in in 2025. But there are some points I wanted to highlight where I think we can get better. For example, one is we need to have slots for scientific advice only. If I have the opportunity to talk to the decision-maker before I submit my dossier for an uh, HTA uh, procedure, only then I can have a very good dossier to convince the, the, the decision-maker. So it's really important that we have enough slots for scientific advice. Uh, that's not given now because there are only, there's a li- limited amount of uh, slots for scientific advice which are offered by the European Commission. We have talked to the Commission, we have talked to UNETA21, we have um, alluded to the fact that we need slots for any product undergoing the procedure, and we are hopeful that uh, there will be ways found that we can secure that. I think that's a very important um, starting point because it's a bit like in school. If you're starting at the right starting point, uh, you don't have uh, many chances to succeed and convince uh, the decision maker that what you have been handed in is uh, is a very good outcome and is actually meeting the the needs of the uh, of the authorities in that respect. So uh, talking in the beginning is critical, interaction is critical, and I think that we can get a bit better. Other than that, I'm confident that we will have a procedure in place which, um, which sets the scene for national pricing and reimbursement decisions, because let's not forget about the fact that ultimately uh, the national governments, the national decision makers will negotiate prices, will uh, on the basis of the EUHDA dossier um, uh, set their pricing uh, schemes in place and and ultimately leads to uh, make decisions about excess
4: no thank you for that um really fascinating particularly to hear about that uh, about the slots for decision makers that wasn't something i was familiar with that, that was an issue so yeah that's an interesting advancement for sure looking a bit more broadly now um So there's a lot of talk. It's a topic we've written about quite extensively in the magazine, and that is the EU as an innovation hub um, and where it's at and kind of where it could go. So I'd love to hear your perspective on the potential for the pharmaceutical industry in the EU. Um, How do you think we're doing at the moment? Um, First of all, let's start with that.
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think at the moment, we, we, we have a good, we, we've struck a good balance over the last 20 years. And I'd like to give one example, which is orphan legislation. We have almost seen 200 orphan medicines, which I'm sure we wouldn't see uh, if we wouldn't have orphan exclusivity uh, uh, invented in the, in the year 2000 when orphan legislation came into place. So um, I'm, I'm uh, really um, happy with what we've seen over the last 20 years in a way. I mean, we're not perfect in, in uh, AMR. We don't have many products it's around the globe. That's an issue. Um, but when it comes to orphan drugs, we have a positive examples. So I'm also um, slightly positive about the fact that we've seen new technologies like cell and gene therapies act actually launched in European markets. So markets have actually, there's one exception with a product uh, called Zinteglo, but all the other products have actually reached European patients. So. Uh, really new technologies, cell and gene therapies, uh, uh, se- um, uh, gene replacement therapies, uh, which have tremendous therapeutic effects for, uh, for patients, and which are very often children. I think we have seen a lot of innovation also when it comes to cystic fibrosis and other indications in, in the rare disease space, uh, in SMA not at least. Um, so that's really positive. What I fear, and that's really something I must underline, that, um, that we might lose ground in terms of competitiveness from the industry perspective, but also lose ground from the patient access perspective in the future. Because some of the discussions uh, I, I, I listen to when I'm in Brussels uh, worry me in that sense that I wouldn't take it for granted that we have so much clearance and predictability about exclusivity periods in the future. Because um, we're discussing about Putting layers like an unmet medical need only when there is an unmet medical need, uh, we would get often exclusivity. I mean, investors investing into companies early stage would only invest money if they know how much exclusivity they would get for the investment if the product is successful. And let's not forget about the fact that there are also many failures, which we are never talking about in, in podcasts like these because they never see the light of the day. And, and it's really important that we give that security to investors um, to make sure they know when they're investing their money into projects and companies, what they will get. If there's any uncertainty by adding um, uh, terms like unmet medical need, where I, I would think we all have diff- very different ideas what an unmet medical need is. You can debate a long time uh, about what is an unmet medical need. So using those undefined terminology uh, when setting uh, the the regulatory framework and especially exclusivities can be can be can be very negative for innovation and and this is one example I wanted to highlight and some discussions which are here in Brussels about uh, about uh, orphan exclusivity in my opinion seem not to go in the right direction because. These discussions, they tend to forget about the fact that we are regulating our prices in what we have discussed before, health technology assessments at the national level, and we find prices, so it's not, it's not a, an, a situation where you have a complete free pricing situation in, in Europe for orphan drugs. But I hear a lot of criticism, and that worries me. Of course, we have to um, revise legislation after 20 years of its, its, exist, its existence, and there are also some positive elements in, in, in these discussions but um, I, I'd like to make the point that it's not to be taken for granted that we will have the rather positive uh, innovative climate in terms of in regulatory terms which we have today in Europe. We, we might not have it in, in five or ten years from now so I'm, I'm confident that we get it right but there is a certain risk that um, there are some other elements included which, are, which can be negative for innovation.
4: Absolutely. A very exciting time for the industry and also a very important time to stay competitive, as you have mentioned there. Alexander, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I think that's a great note to end on.
1: Thanks for coming on.
5: Thanks a lot for having me. It's a great pleasure. Thank you.
1: A really interesting overview there of not only pricing and reimbursement changes that are on the horizon, but also how Europe can stay competitive on the innovation global stage. It'll also be interesting to see how the HTA procedure pans out, but there are certainly many benefits to be claimed if it can deliver on what it hopes to.
0: It will indeed. Now, sadly, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much to Lenius and Alexander for joining us and to you for listening. We'll be taking some time off from the podcast next week as we'll be joining in with the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations here in the UK. But don't worry, we'll be back with a new episode on the 14th of June. So do be sure to subscribe to Gold wherever you get your podcast from so you don't miss out on that next episode.
1: Take care and it's goodbye from us for
0: now. Yes, See you soon.